Well, when I swam for a master's team, when we lived in Kirkland, I occasionally used to drive to West Seattle early on Saturday mornings for a workout. And you had to get up really early because it started um, right at 6.15. But I had to get to West Seattle and to the pool at West Seattle by 6.15. And if you've ever been to the Coleman Pool in West Seattle, it's a fantastic pool. It's a saltwater pool. For those who like to swim, it's a great place to go. Um, it's an outdoor pool. It's right on the sound. And uh, the lanes are 50 meters long rather than the 25-yard lanes that you often get in uh, more local pools. So the workouts here tended to be more stressful and strenuous than other places that I would go during the week. And I had to remain very focused. Um, I had to remain very attentive to what it was that I was doing. Well, I remember one morning in particular staying very focused. And towards the end of the workout, I slowly began to notice that something very unsettling had happened. <clears throat> slowly but surely, I began to notice that I was, in fact, the only one in the pool. I had just turned um, off of the shallow end, and I was sure that something was wrong. Uh, and so I put my head above the water, and sure enough, I noticed that every swimmer had indeed evacuated the pool. And I tried to figure out what was going wrong. There I was with my head above the water, all the swimmers on the deck. No one immediately spoke to me. And I was looking around, sort of goggles off by this time, trying to figure out why had everybody gotten out of the pool. Well, after a long pause, someone casually mentioned to me, that there was lightning. And so, of course, I jumped out of the pool and I grabbed my towel and I made my way for the locker room. Now, for those of you um, who maybe don't know as much about electricity, I didn't know this about electricity, but any form of lightning within an area where somebody is in open water um, is potentially fatal. And in fact, just that year, there had been an event where someone was swimming in Manhattan Beach in Los Angeles, and the lightning had struck and had killed a swimmer who was just out um, in a normal part of the swimming area in Southern California. So lightning is, in fact, very dangerous when you are swimming in open water. Well, I jumped out and I grabbed my towel and headed to the locker room, but I'll tell you that I was very unsteadied the rest of the day. I was the last one in the pool. I kept reflecting on that. No one told me. There were opportunities to grab my foot while I was going down those long lanes of swimming, and they went by. And those of you that swim know that you communicate through touch. That's the way that you do it, because you can't hear people. So you've got to grab someone's toe. And as a swimmer, you know that if your toe is bumped, there's something that somebody's trying to tell you. So there's a code of communication. It's just one that happens through touch. But, but that didn't happen. And though I recognized, sure enough, that the lightning wasn't that close, and that by all standards of probability, there were not very, the chances were not high indeed that this lightning would strike the pool. I still felt unsettled. At the end of the day, when I reflected on it, it felt as if no one had bothered 
to care enough to let me know that I was in potential danger. And I'm sure that many of you have been in different situations. In fact, you've shared with me on, in private conversations events that have happened where you've talked, you've been in one event in Seattle or another, and, and the communication is not what you would like to see when it comes to total disclosure or understanding. Well, today's text is about messengers. It's about the work of John the Baptist and his work as a messenger, and not just as a messenger particularly, but what I want to talk about when it comes to John the Baptist today is his work as a truth teller. He was a truth teller. And particularly, he was a truth teller that prepared the way for the Messiah. Now, John's role is essential in the Gospels. He's mentioned in all four Gospels. And whenever something is mentioned in all four Gospels, it's a clue for us to pay very close attention to it. It means that there's something important going on there. The Gospel writers insist that he must be connected with the birth of Jesus. They never let that go by. In fact, even in John's Gospel, where we get a very different rendition of the birth of Jesus, we still have the connection to the person of John the Baptist. You see, the Gospel writers recognize that the promised Messiah does not just randomly arrive in the first century, but that he is connected to a promise, to something that is going on within history that God had been working on previous to his birth. In other words, that the life of Jesus was in fact more than just a life well lived that we might turn to and celebrate today. Before his ministry, before even his birth, there was preparation within the people of Israel. There had to be a clearing of the path. There had to be sort of a moving away of some of the ideas that were circulating within the life of Israel in order to make space for the person of John the Baptist. But the other thing that needed to happen is that the gospel writers wanted us to know that the birth of Jesus is in fact deeply connected to the promises that happened within the Old Testament. And if you thumb through your Old Testament and you look at the very last book, which is the book of Malachi, and you turn to the very last verse that is in the book of Malachi, which is chapter 4, verse 5, you'll hear these words. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day that the Lord comes. And that's the last word from the book of Malachi. And so I share that with you today because the Israelites would have known that. They would have known that there was someone coming who was going to prepare the way to make the space for them. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he is not coming with discontinuity, but he is in fact coming with continuity with the promises of the Old Testament. They needed this sort of messenger the Old and the New Testament agree. They needed a truth teller in order to prepare the way. And John's message itself, it was a very stark rendering of the truth that he saw. He didn't mince words. He talked specifically about sin, and he talked about repentance. 
And so I want to spend a little bit of time today in our Advent time to talk about sin and to talk about repentance. David Brooks, who many of you might know from the column that he writes in the New York Times, said in a recent interview that he posted right before the election, it was in late October, that as, and he reflected on the time that he was writing his book, The Road to Character, which some of you might have read. And he said that in, while he was writing this book, that he had a chance to go on a talk show to talk about what the book was about, to sort of give some publicity to the book. And in the talk show, he kept using the word sin, because that's what he talks about in the book. And he, after that interview, was called by another publishing company who said, you know, I really liked what it was that you were talking about today. But I don't like the fact that you used the word sin. How about, in fact, we change that word to the word insensitive? So David Brooks brought that back to his first publisher and said, hey, here's the feedback that I've heard. What do you think? Do you think we need to change the word? And in fact, his first publisher gave him this feedback. And the response was very firm, he said. No, you need to use the word sin. That's your job here in this text, is to help people understand what it means. And that, my friends, was a message in 2015. I love the story that David Brooks tells. And I think that it is also a reminder to us that the use of theological language has in fact not gone out of style, but we need to understand it and to make it accessible and available for the people that we come into contact with. We need to learn to talk about sin again. It's a way of being a truth teller. And as the people of Jesus, this is part of our story. John the Baptist is part of our story. And sin is part of our story. And we need to be willing to go there. Because John does. He does go there. He is not afraid to tell others in his culture about the lightning near the pool. John is in the wilderness but he's crying out this word, repent. And the word repent is a very important and interesting word. And I want to just tell you a little bit about that word this morning. It's a hearkening of the Hebrew word that is shuv, which means to turn. So it's a hearkening back to that word. But actually, the word repent in Greek means something slightly different. It's two words put together, meta noeo the way that you know, or the way that you go about knowing, meta-noeo. Rendering it differently, and other translators have done it this way, it could mean, in fact, to change one's mind, to think differently, to think differently in light of knowing new information. Now think back to the way that John uses that word. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, think differently, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
There is something coming that is actually going to change the way that you think. And as it changes the way that you think, it too will change the way that you act. It will change the very fruits that come out of your body. Repentance does not just mean in the end to change the way that you think, but to change what you do. But the word itself recognizes that that first happens by how you think. And so John says, repent, not just out of nothing, but because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's something good enough and strong enough and firm enough to be the ground by which you will actually change how you think. And that then launches John into the rest of the work that he's doing because if you'll notice in this harsh biting dialogue that he has with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he calls them a brood of vipers. And that word brood has to do with um, offspring. He's saying you're, you're being born out of the work of snakes. What you're doing is not feeding anyone. It's not nourishing anyone. That's what John is trying to unleash here. And then he has this other word where he talks about the axe is at the root of the tree. And he's using just exactly that image from Isaiah. He's saying the axe is at the root, at the shoot of that which is coming out of the tree. And it's there to cut down the things that are not bearing fruit. Because to repent is to change the way you think. To change the way you think is to change the way you are. To change the way you are is to change your being within the world and to measure it by the way in which you bear fruit. It's a hard word. It's a truth-telling word. And so when the prophet Malachi tells us that this Elijah figure is coming, it's in order to bear the path for us to hear about this clearing, this space that needs to be made so that, in fact, we will be ready for the work that Jesus needs to do, that we will be ready for the work that Jesus needs to do. You know, sometimes we as good theologians and good Calvinists think that maybe John is too harsh we think, what about grace? Isn't he putting the law before the gospel here? Well, don't forget that John is talking specifically about those who are in the community of Israel. He's talking to those who have the law and who know it, who are part of the salvation story. He's not talking about the road to salvation. He's talking about what the map looks like after that. And in that, he's clearing the path for the one who will bring about the true salvation of Israel and then will extend that promise to the rest of the world. It's an honest truth-telling. It's a way to clear the path. Well, Advent, my friends, is a time to take stock, to notice what's happening in the fruit of our lives, and in the fruit of the world. And in closing, I want to share with you two truth-tellings that I noticed this week. The first was published on Wednesday in the op-ed part of the New York Times, and it was written by Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo.
who are two firmly placed evangelical thinkers who have come together, one who did much of his work during the 80s and the 90s of the 20th century, and Shane Claiborne, who is an up-and-coming uh, Christian evangelical thinker who has done much of his work around the turn of the century. And these two men came together to say something very particular to the church. And I want to read this to you today because it's about that turning, that repenting, that clearing the way. As white male evangelists, we have no problem admitting that the future does not lie with us. It lies with groups like the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, led by Gabriel Salguero, or the Moral Monday Movement, led by William Barber II, who has challenged the news media on its narrow portrayal of evangelicals. For decades, we have worked within an evangelicalism to lift up the voices of these other evangelicals. But we cannot continue to allow our sisters and brothers who are leading God's movement to be considered other. We are not confident that evangelicalism is the community in which younger and non-white voices can flourish. And we are not willing to let our faith be the collateral damage of evangelicalism. Next year marks the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, one of the most significant moments in the history of Christianity. The reformers were navigating many of the same currents and contradictions that we face today. Perhaps we need a new reformation, one that invites Christians to return, to return to the teachings of Jesus and offers our neighbors a truer vision of how he lived and moved in the world. The words of Jesus, which are printed in red in many Bibles, could not be more relevant today. Despite the terrible things done in the name of Jesus, a Christianity that stays true to his words has survived for 2,000 years. Maybe this is a moment in our history for evangelicals to repent and be born again as red-letter Christians. Written Wednesday of this week. And another truth-telling that I just want to draw your attention to is in the celebration of the person of Elie Wiesel in the National Holocaust Museum that took place um, this week. And I want to note here that when Elie Wiesel worked to get his publication, his novel Night, um, published, he was often turned down because it was too dark of a story to be recorded within the publication of American novels. And so a publisher re, uh, reflects on this. Miss Power explains how publishing houses eschewed the proposal for the book, which had been translated from Yiddish. When Ellie went in search of an American publisher, he later recalled their rejection letters, often noting that American readers seemed to prefer more optimistic books. Well, I think history can tell us that we need truth-tellers in all cultures, in all shapes, in all sizes, of all colors. And so we must never shy away from our Christian heritage, which encourages us to repent, to take stock, to turn, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
We needn't be afraid of John the Baptist and his call to repent. One is coming, he says, who is mightier than he. One is coming, he says, whom he is not worthy to untie his sandal. One is coming, he says, who will take us out of the pool. He will not be afraid to get our attention. He will not be afraid to tell us why and tell us where to go. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the work of John the Baptist and for the words of John the Baptist that shake us to our very core and that call us to repent, to take stock, to pay attention to the fruit of our lives and how that fruit bears witness to your coming kingdom. So let us do that in this week and in the coming weeks as, in fact, we prepare for the birth of Jesus and your coming return. Amen. Let us stand. Mm-hmm.